Thank you very much for that introduction. Uh, it's really lovely to be with you this evening. Uh, I uh, count you as neighbors. I suppose you're just up the road from us, and uh, we haven't done anything together since the Good Friday service, but perhaps it would be lovely to reignite something like that going forward. Uh, we are in a great work together, uh, and in Christ we are family. So it's a real honor to be uh, with you this evening. And if you have your Bible, please do open with me to Matthew's Gospel. Uh, my assignment this evening has been to work through chapter 8, verse 23, down to chapter 9, verse 17. So I'm going to read that first, then I'll pray, ask for the Lord's help, and we'll uh, get stuck into the passage looking at it together. So Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "'Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven.'" And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? 
And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the, path tears away from, the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and we pray now by the power of your Spirit that you would floodlight the glory and authority of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And may we, seeing the glory of Jesus, respond rightly in reverence, surrender, and awe. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife, Lindsay, is an artist and she trained fine in, uh, fine in, in fine and applied art at Belfast Art College. And for her final year show, she painted uh, a collection of about 300 little mini portraits um, or pictures of little keyholes. Each painting was a piece of art in its own right. You could look at each piece and see the detail and the intricacy in it. But whenever they were all assembled, and you took a step back, all those individual paintings of keyholes actually gave you an outline of the cross. She entitled the piece Intimacy, and the whole idea was that the cross is the place where we go through death and sin and condemnation to find the deepest intimacy and peace and joy in God. Now, I find this illustration of little pictures making one great collage helpful when I approach the Gospels, especially a Gospel like Matthew. For the Gospel writers are doing something similar to my wife when she was taking individual portraits or pictures and assembling them all uh, into one big image. The Gospel writers have recorded for us lots of individual snapshots or little portraits of events in Jesus' life and ministry. You can study each individual account that the Gospel writers give us and see something distinctive and unique and beautiful about the glory of Jesus. But when all of those little mini portraits or images or events from Jesus' life are collated and you step back, you ultimately see that the life of Jesus, the whole story of Jesus leads us to the cross, to the place of deep intimacy with God. What we have in the Gospels are carefully curated portraits of Jesus' life. And they're not here just to give us an accurate understanding of Jesus' life, so that we'll say, oh, that's historically interesting. No, these accounts are supposed to have an effect on us. They call for a response. Seeing Jesus should have a shaping effect on our lives. And in the portion of Scripture we come to this evening, what Matthew does is he actually assembles three events 
from the life and ministry of Jesus. Three individual portraits, snapshots from Jesus' life and ministry that are designed to help us see that Jesus is a person with authority. In fact, a person with unique authority. The three little portraits are these. Chapter 8, verses 23 to 27, in the calming of the storm. We see that Jesus has authority over the natural world, which is seen in his calming of the storm. Then chapter 8, verses 28 uh, down to 34, we see that Jesus has authority over the spiritual world, seen in his delivering these men from their demons. Then chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, we see Jesus has authority over the greatest problem facing humanity, and that is our sin. He has authority to forgive sins. And as I said, these portraits, carefully curated by Matthew, are not just given to entertain us. They are calling for a response. And that's what the passages that we'll dip into just briefly after these three portraits are all about. We see two examples of how to respond to the authority of Jesus. In Matthew, who follows obediently, but then we see a way not to respond in those who push Jesus away and actually kind of choose a kind of religious respectability over truly following Jesus. And the question that this passage asks each of us is simply this, how will you respond to this Jesus? How are you responding? Are you thinking about him rightly? When you're confronted with the question of the disciples in 827, what sort of man is this? The question is, how will you respond? So what we're going to do is look at each of these portraits of Jesus, these little snapshots of events in his life, and then we'll think of the responses that are appropriate, and we'll apply things right throughout the message. So first, let's look at Jesus' authority over the natural world, verses 23 to 27. Matthew seems to organize this account around three great things that happen in the narrative. There's a great storm, a great calm, and what we could call a great astonishment. In verse 23, we're simply told that Jesus gets into a boat with his disciples to make one of their many crossings over the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles from top to bottom, eight miles across at its widest point. It's not just a wee small pond that you would have at the bottom of your garden. In verse 24, we read that a great storm sweeps over the sea and makes the conditions for sailing very treacherous. You've probably heard this before, the Sea of Galilee even today is notorious for such sudden windstorms. They get whipped up at very short notice. It's something to do with the mountains that surround the sea and this sort of wind that just whistles through the valleys and whips up storms all of a sudden. And the boat that Jesus and the disciples are in, it's not like the sort of Stena line that you would get over to Scotland there down at the docks. This would have been a small fishing boat, eight meters long, two and a half meters wide, probably a meter and a half high. At the most, it could squeeze in about 15 people. So Jesus and the disciples in this narrative, they're in the boat in the middle of a storm, and it's clearly a terrifying experience, at least for the disciples. For at the end of verse 24, we learn that it doesn't seem to be so terrifying for Jesus. Even in the midst of such a storm, we read that Jesus is asleep. Some of these boats are known to have had a raised platform that had a slight covering on it so that there was a little space to lie down and rest. Now, here's what's striking. This is the only time in the Gospels where we read of Jesus sleeping. 
He must have slept a lot. But there's only one time in the Gospels you read of Jesus sleeping. And so I think this is supposed to catch our eye. I think we're to see something in this. And I think what we're to see is a picture of Jesus' complete trust and rest in his heavenly Father. The only time we read of Jesus sleeping is in a storm. That's no coincidence. Well, the disciples are not experiencing such rest. I don't think I could have slept in such a storm. And in verse 25, they wake Jesus up and they say, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And Jesus' response to them in verse 26 is pretty searching. Jesus asks, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then we read that he arose, with sovereign authority, he rebukes the winds and the sea, and now instead of a great storm, we read there was a great calm. Jesus commands the forces that no man can control, and when he says, quiet, the storm bows before its maker. Silence falls on the sea that had been so chaotic and deathly just a moment before. Perhaps the most powerful part of this miracle is understanding that you know wind can stop quickly, but even hours, days after strong windstorms at sea, it can take the sea a long time to settle. But here, Jesus presses a calm on the wind and the sea and everything is calm in an instant. Now, how would you expect the disciples to react after this? You would expect them probably to rejoice. But that's not quite how they respond in the text. They're struck with a kind of reverent astonishment. In Mark's account of this miracle, he says that there was a fear that filled the disciples at this moment. In fact, a great fear. Mark 4.41, the disciples were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This has led one commentator to quite humorously say, the only thing more frightening than being in a small boat in the middle of a big storm is being in a small boat with a man who shouts at the big storm and the storm obeys. In that moment, the disciples caught a glimpse of the holiness of Jesus Christ, the total otherness, the total transcendence of Christ. And in the presence of the holy, they trembled with fear and reverent astonishment. So there was a great storm, and then a great calm, and then a great fear. What does this little portrait tell us about Jesus? Well, first, certainly this. He's not just a man. He is God incarnate, the Son of God. You have to ask yourself, is there any clearer picture in all of Scripture of both the human nature and divine nature of Jesus Christ being put on display at one moment? What do I mean by that? Well, think about this. Jesus is tired and he sleeps. God doesn't sleep. And yet here we see the humanity of the God-man as Jesus, tired and weary from constant ministry, falls asleep in the storm. 
But then look at how he rises from sleep and exerts his divine power over the natural world. We see just in these few verses the humanity of Jesus, the sovereign divinity of Jesus, and we are to stop and ask the question that the disciples ask, what sort of man is this? And you have to answer that question for yourself. The second thing this little portrait teaches us about Jesus is this, something to help us with our fears and our anxieties. If Jesus is in our boat, we don't have to fear all that's outside of the boat, especially death. Jesus' question to the disciples in verse 26 is searching, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. I mean, what's he saying in that moment? Jesus' question assumes if they did have faith in who he was and in the fact that he was with them, they would not be so afraid. It's like he's saying, if you really understood who I am, if you really got it, who it is who is with you in the storm, if you would really embrace who I am by faith, you would not be given to so much fear. Listen, if Jesus is in the boat of your life, you don't have to fear all that's outside the boat because Jesus in the boat with you is more powerful than anything outside the boat. When you're afraid, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Do you remember what happened to Simon Peter when he was walking on the sea with Jesus? All was going well while he looked to Christ. But when he started to look at everything that made him afraid, his circumstances, the wind, the, the, the waves, he started to sink. It was all going well when he kept his eyes on Christ. But when he got consumed with his circumstances and took his eyes off Christ... He sank. It can be similar with us. Jesus clearly is portrayed in this little account as one with unique authority over the natural world. But now in our second little portrait, our second little account, uh, in verses 28 to 34, we see that Jesus, Jesus has authority not just over the natural world, but over the spiritual world. In verse 28, we read that Jesus and the disciples, after the storm, they arrive in Gentile territory to the country of the Gadarenes. No sooner had Jesus stepped out of the boat, where we read in verse 28 that two demon-possessed men met him. Now, that is confrontational language. They met him. They are to stop him from going any further. We read at the end of verse 28 an interesting little comment from Matthew that no one, these demons, these men were so fierce that no one could pass by that way. Matthew doesn't linger on the details like some of the other gospel writers like Mark, but we know they were in a miserable place, these men. Mark tells us that at least one of these men had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. Luke tells us that these men wore hardly any clothes, and Mark describes their misery further, saying that they were continually crying out and cutting themselves with stones. Where in the previous narrative the storm had been in the sea, now these men have a storm within them. They were in a deep pit of misery. No one had been able to approach them or confront their problems or help them. But Jesus is not just anyone. 
Look at what happens when he enters the space of these men troubled by demons. Verse 29, behold, the demons, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to confront us before the time? Now, notice a few things at this point. We could say a lot, but I'll be brief. First, the demons know Jesus' true identity, and they tremble before him. What have you to do with us, O son of God? They know who this is. Two, they knew that Jesus has all authority, including authority over them. Three, the demons knew the future ahead of them. Again, verse 29, we see they know they're destined for eternal torment, and in terror they beg the Holy Christ not to meet them with his wrath. You could say that the demons appreciate the holiness of Jesus perhaps more than many of us. In verse 30, we learn of this herd of pigs nearby. The demons beg Jesus to let them enter the pigs. It's hard to understand exactly what's going on there. But the point in the narrative, again, is that we're to see Jesus' authority over these evil spiritual beings. In verse 32, Jesus says just one small word, go. And immediately, the demons that no one else could confront and deal with flee. They enter the pigs, the whole herd rushes down to its destruction. We read then that the herdsmen all fled into the city. They had a fear-filled response to the majestic authority of Jesus again on display. They report in their city everything that's happened, and then the people from the city come out, and they beg Jesus to leave their region. Kind of like Simon Peter again. When, remember, Jesus told him after he had fished all night and caught nothing, Jesus said, go out, let down your nets on the other side for a catch. They caught all these fish, and suddenly Peter had this realization that he was in the presence of the Holy One. And he was smitten in his conscience, and he couldn't bear it. And he said, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Here we have another portrait of one with absolute authority. We see the response of the villagers, the people who witnessed this powerful demonstration of the authority of Christ over the spiritual realm. How do they respond? Well, they ask Jesus to leave. They push him away. They say, we're not ready for this authority. In fact, we're going to lose material gain. If you stick around, we can't lose any more pigs. So, Jesus, just leave us. And again, the question is, how will you respond to this, Jesus? Will you be like them and say, Lord, just go. I can't handle you around me. Well, then we move on to the third portrait of the authority of Jesus in the narrative. We see Jesus' authority in chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, as an authority which can forgive sin. In this next account, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus' authority extends farther, or perhaps better, it goes deeper than anything we've seen thus far. The account begins with Jesus returning to what Matthew calls his own city. We know this to be Capernaum. Where Mark tells us in his account all about the men who carry their paralyzed friend to Jesus, lowering him down through the roof, Matthew doesn't give us any of those details because he wants to keep the spotlight on Jesus and his authority. And he just tells us this. Some people brought to Jesus a paralytic lying on a bed. And you can imagine in that packed house, with every single eye on Jesus, every neck straining, 
Everyone was watching to see what he would do. And with this paralyzed man sitting in front of this authoritative Christ, in verse 2 here, chapter 9, we see Jesus' response right at the end of the verse. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, don't miss the significance of what Jesus says there when he uses this language, my son. Son is a family word. This is the language of someone being made right with God. Jesus is forgiving this man his sins. He's welcoming this man, this paralyzed man, as a member of the household of God. Now, you can imagine the draw-in of breath and the reaction of the crowds when Jesus said these words, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. You have to wonder, did the paralyzed man kind of think, you know, I came hoping that I'd get healed of my paralysis? Is that all Jesus is going to do, so that my sins are forgiven? The crowds may have been a bit disappointed because, again, they thought they were going to see something more spectacular. We don't have to guess what the scribes were thinking because we're told what they're thinking in verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes, the religious leaders, that is, said to themselves, this man's blaspheming. See, they're thinking to themselves, who does this young rabbi think he is? That's blasphemy because only God can pronounce the forgiveness of sins. Blasphemy was a sin punishable by death under the Mosaic laws. This was a big accusation. Now, of course, theologically, they're right. Only God can forgive sins. But their problem is they don't see the true identity of Jesus. They don't want to see it. Because if he has all authority, they'll lose theirs. In verse 4, we read that Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Now, he wants everyone to conclude that the easier thing to say is your sins are forgiven, because that involves a spiritual transaction that is invisible. Jesus can say in in front of that whole crowd, your sins are forgiven, and no one will know if his pronouncement has come with any effect. In short, It's not easily falsifiable. But if he was to say the kind of thing that everyone came to hear him say, rise up and walk, well, then everyone would see very quickly if his words carried any authority and power or not. He could be shown to be a fake if he says, rise up and walk, and nothing happens. So in verse 6, Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and then notice the sentence just breaks off there. Jesus turns to the paralyzed man and says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And what do we read in verse 7? And he rose and went home. Jesus' actions here argue for one single conclusion. If the word of healing was effective, the pronouncement, rise up and walk, was effective, then the pronouncement of forgiveness of sins must be effective too. In short, this Jesus is no fake. How did the people respond? Isn't it interesting? Verse 8, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. More fear at a revelation of the the holiness of Christ. They glorified God who had given such authority to men. So that's the third portrait of the authority of Jesus. He is one who has authority to forgive sins. 
The point is clear. Not just authority over the natural world, not just authority over the spiritual world, this one has authority over humanity's deepest problem. He has authority on behalf of God to forgive sins. Now, you and I need him to do that for us. And he can do that for us. We know he holds this authority because he is the son of God. He is God incarnate here in our narrative who came to die on the cross to bear our sins. But through his death, he went through death and blew a hole in the back of death through his powerful resurrection. He's the only one who could go through death and come out the other side having defeated sin because he is God. He trampled sin, death, and condemnation in the grave, and he stands with it under his feet. And because he lives, we can live. Because he has risen from the dead, we have hope beyond the grave. Because he has authority, authority to forgive sins, we must come and fall at his feet and say, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. And as you're promised in the opening chapters of 1 John, If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to purify you from all unrighteousness. So those are the portraits of Jesus' authority in Matthew's carefully curated account. But very briefly, let's consider two ways that we can respond. How are you going to respond to this Jesus this evening and this revelation of his authority? Here's one way. You can just push him away. There are two ways to do this, a more obvious way and a more subtle way. The obvious way we already touched on briefly. It's at the end of that second portrait when Jesus drove out the demons. The people of the town said, we don't want anything to do with this Jesus. It might mean economic loss. We don't want one to exercise lordship over us. We want to be our own lords. Now that is how most young people in our culture today, in our city around us, are thinking. They're saying, we do not want anyone to have authority over us. This is the age of the sovereignty of the self. I am my own master. I am sovereign over my life. I sovereignly decide what is moral, what is immoral, and no one can argue with me. Even if I bump up against reality, it's reality that must be redefined and not my inner sense of who I am. That's what's behind the whole transgender movement. If reality is different to what I think inwardly, reality must be redefined, not me. And here is one who wants to come into your life and exercise all authority, a life-giving authority, a liberating authority. Because in the end, when you make yourself your own sovereign, It's something we were never made to bear. I studied philosophy at Queen's just across the way there years ago now. And we talked about this thing in existentialism called existential dread. Now, I'm not going to get all philosophical on you. But the sort of sense was we were studying these writers who were saying, you know, man is free. We've thrown off this idea of an absolute morality. And that means we are free to make up our own morality. But what happens all of a sudden? The weight of making up your own morality sinks in and you start to experience what's called existential dread. You start to think, oh boy, that's a huge responsibility. To make up what's moral. 
And what if I think this is moral and you think it's immoral? How do we decide? When there's no external absolute morality, that's a plumb line that we can measure ourselves up against. You see, so many today are pushing away and the, the, the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ over their lives because they think his lordship will lead them into slavery. And yet his lordship sets us free because the morality that he defines for us is good. It's a morality that is designed for human flourishing. So have you been pushing away the lordship of Jesus? You know, many Christians growing up, they, they, they early on in their Christian life, they have an understanding that Jesus is a savior. He can save us from our sins. But usually a little bit later on, it starts to dawn, hang on, I can't just accept him as a savior and take a ticket, get out of hell ticket, and then just live as if I'm Lord of my life. I have to actually surrender my whole life to Jesus as my savior and as my Lord, no longer living for myself, but living for him. That's normal Christianity. So have you been pushing away the lordship of Christ, the authority of Christ over your life so that you can be your own authority? Do not do that anymore. Stop resisting. Bow to the sovereign authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a more subtle way to push away Jesus also. We see this in the response of the religious leaders, the Pharisees in the next story in the calling of Matthew from verses 9 to 13. I can only dip into this very briefly. But after Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, a tax collector, Jesus ends up, we learn in verse 10, hanging out with loads of tax collectors and sinners as he dines at Matthew's house. The Pharisees can't handle this respectable Jewish religious leader hanging out with the lowest of the low of the day. And so they come and ask the disciples in verse 11, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's a bit much for the Pharisees. They want to build a separatistic, clean and cozy, middle-class kind of religion that has no time for the outright sinners of society. They reject Jesus and they embrace what we could call a kind of religious respectability that might look good on the outside, but ultimately it's empty of any real life-transforming power because it still hasn't made Jesus Lord. The Pharisees wanted to be Lord they wanted to build a religious system that was based on do's and don'ts so that they could control it. And whenever Jesus broke their mold and said, look, I have not called, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, they couldn't handle it. They just wanted a nice, holy huddle of religious respectability. They didn't have time to go and evangelize in the streets or to go among the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners. They just wanted it to be nice and clean. They wanted to be in control of it. Jesus was too much of a threat. And so subtly they chose religious rules over the lordship of Christ. We have to be very careful that we don't make the same mistake. Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. In the next narrative, he says, it's not a time for scrupulosity and fasting, but a time for rejoicing because the bridegroom is here, a new day is here, the authoritative Lord is in your midst. 
a day of life in Christ. So let me ask, have you been pushing Jesus away, either very obviously or more subtly? But here then is another way to respond, a better way to respond, and with this I'll close. We can receive him by faith and follow him. This is exactly what Matthew the tax collector does in chapter 9, verse 9. It's so simple. Jesus sees Matthew, a notorious sinful tax collector, sitting at his tax booth, and he just says to him, follow me. And what do we read? And he rose and followed him. It's another little display of the authority of Jesus. He calls a sinner, come. And that is an effectual call that awakens Matthew, and Matthew comes. It's powerful. Matthew follows him. Just before Matthew's response to the call of Jesus, we read in chapter 9, verse 7 of the crowds who, or sorry, Matthew 9, verse 8 of the crowds who, when they saw Jesus' authority to forgive sins, they were afraid, but then they glorified God who had given such authority to men. They rejoiced in Christ's authority. Matthew hears the ring of Christ's authority when he calls him to follow him, and Matthew responds, and he follows. Here is the right response to the authority of Jesus Christ. It is a response marked by wonder and reverence, reflecting the disciples in the boat after Jesus stilled the storm. It is a reaction to the authority of Jesus that leads to rejoicing, like the crowds who saw the paralyzed man being healed and more importantly, his deeper need, his sins being forgiven. And our right response is seen in the obedience of Matthew when Jesus called him to leave all and follow him. When John's disciples come in verses 14 to 17 and say, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus simply says to them, look, can, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Jesus is saying, look, the, groom, the bridegroom's here. Life is here. Light is here. Joy is here. An authoritative Savior and Lord and God is in your midst. Why would you push him away? Why would you choose empty formal religion over life-giving, a life-giving relationship with Jesus? Jesus is saying it's a new day, a day of new wine, new joy, new life, new wonder, new astonishment. It's not a day for empty religion. It's not a day to just stay in a holy huddle. This is a day for bringing hope and life to the nations. Get a new vision for your life. Well, I have to close back to the artwork that I started with, this picture of all of my wife Lindsay's 300 little keyhole portrait pictures that when put together formed a great picture of the cross. Just step back this evening from these three little individual canvases, the authority of Jesus over the natural world, the authority of Jesus over the spiritual world, the authority of Jesus over the greatest problem of our sin. Step back, see the glory of the authority of the Son of God, and now ask yourself this. What sort of man is this? What is the response of your heart?
to that question. That is the most important thing about you. Are you responding this evening and saying, he is Lord of all and he's my Lord? Or are you just pushing him away, saying he's a threat to my lordship? Listen, when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he didn't say, look, it'd be a bit of an idea if you'd be born again, Nicodemus. It'd be a bit of an idea for you to move away from religious respectability and start, start considering another way. What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? Not you should be born again. Not it might be a good thing for you to think about being born again. What did he say? You must be born again. You must experience new life in Christ. You must hear the sovereign authoritative call of Jesus Christ to bow before him, to confess your sins to him, to give your sins to him, for he alone can give you life. Everything else outside of him is condemnation, judgment, and death, eternal hell. Christ alone can give you life. Will you respond to him and bow the knee to his authority again this evening? Let me pray as we close. Father, thank you for these glorious portraits of the glorious authority of Jesus Christ. We pray this evening that by your Spirit you'd work in our hearts so that our response would be a right response, an honest, authentic response, so that from the bottom of our hearts we would be saying, Lord, I am sorry for pushing you away. I am sorry for... Um, choosing other things. Lord, come be my sovereign Lord, my life giver, my forgiver of sin. And for us who are Christians here this evening, may we just bow again with rejoicing, reverence and awe, saying, Lord, Father, thank you that we know who this man is. He is your son, our savior, our Lord and giver of life. We bow with delight before him, and we are delighted to say, Jesus is Lord. In his name and his authority we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to respond by singing again uh, and expressing our hope in Christ. So when the musicians uh, have got settled and started, we can stand together and respond in song.